Hi, this is Kelly. You're listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. I want to encourage you right now today to go to vote.org and double check whether you're registered to vote. If you're not, be sure to register very soon as registration deadlines are quickly coming upon us. Hey everyone, this is Kelly with Two Broads Talking Politics, and today I am talking with Katie McBride, who is running for the Massachusetts State Senate in the Plymouth and Norfolk District. Hi, Katie. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? <laughs> Exhausted, but good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. So uh, tell us a little bit about your background and why you've decided to run for the State Senate. Yeah, so I am a pediatrician. I've been a pediatrician for a little over a decade now. I'm a mom of two kids, uh, six and eight years old, who go to public school in the town that I live in, which is uh, Hingham. And I work in the district, too. I work in a town called Situate, so I live and work in the, the district that I'm trying to run in. And I am running because uh, healthcare is a mess. I see my families uh, struggling on a daily basis, and I took an oath to help and heal people when I became a physician. And I can't just sit by and watch my families be hurt any longer when we don't have any physicians in our state house currently. The last physician I could find is 1936. And I think it's about time that we had another one. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this district. Right now, the Massachusetts State Senate has a supermajority of Democrats, but you're running against an incumbent Republican. Yes. My district has been held by a Republican for 20-plus, maybe even 30 years. So it's not to be thought to be winnable by a Democrat, but I believe it can be. Where in Massachusetts is this? It's on the South Shore, so it includes, it starts in Weymouth, goes to Hingham Hall, Cohasset, Situate, Marshfield, Duxbury, Norwell. I think I did all eight towns. So it's all on the South Shore of, uh, of Massachusetts. And what are you hearing from people when you talk to them? Do you think that they are inclined to vote for a Democrat this year? Are they thinking about partisan politics or are they more concerned with issues? It's interesting the more that I do this. I mean, I would say that when I talk to people on the doors and I go to meet and greets, like everybody, everybody, regardless of party, agrees that health care is a mess. So that's very much a nonpartisan issue and it's, it's uh, crushing to Pretty much everybody. And so that's my main part of my platform, um, and that's the experience and skill sets that I bring in. I will say that there are a lot of doors that I hit where they're like, are you just a Democrat? Great. I'm voting D all this year. No problem. <laughs> and we don't, we high five and I move on. You know, um, there are a lot of interesting conversations I've had about people where they differentiate national and federal election versus state and local elections. And how it's considered in state and local elections, slightly more nonpartisan thing. Having said that, that to me is more local, local election is nonpartisan. State is kind of this weird in between. But I, I, I think that this year, and that's what I'm, I'm banking on, is that I, people are excited to vote. They're really excited to vote this year, especially Democrats. I think we're tired of what's going on and the horror that we see every day, and they're ready to vote. We had a huge primary turnout. 20 to 30 percent of people showed up to vote in a primary, which 
on average, you know, five to 10% of people show up for primaries. So we're ready. And I think the Democrats are ready to vote. And so we've been looking at this as we've been talking to people around the country, how differently state legislatures are set up. And of course, the one thing to note about Massachusetts is that the districts all have names. (laughs) Yes. So Norfolk and Plymouth is different than Plymouth and Norfolk, which is what I'm running in, which is super awesome. But the other thing is that the whether these are considered part-time or full-time positions, how much they pay is wildly different from state to state. So what does that look like in Massachusetts? It's tough to get that information out. I've tried to uh, talk to people who have this job already and get that information, and I haven't been wildly successful in getting that. But I will say for me, that's the, uh, that's a big question that everyone asks because I'm a, I'm a pediatrician and I'm working full-time and I'm campaigning full-time. And so um, they w- wonder how I have the energy to do it, but I, I just do it. But when I win this, I'm, I'm going to go on a leave of absence and I'm going to stop practicing as a pediatrician. For me personally, it's because I'm an all-in person. I'm, I'm making claims I want to fix healthcare. That's going to take a lot of energy and a lot of time to do that. So I'm going to devote myself full time to this effort because it needs it. I don't know if other people, how they necessarily treat it. Again, I haven't necessarily got that information, but that's how I'm going to treat it. It is, from what I can gather, a pretty good paying job. It's you know, $60,000 a year. So that's pretty great for most people. But that's about all the information I've been able to glean, (laughs) I guess. You also, in addition to working full-time and campaigning full-time, you also have kids. (laughs) I do. I have two kids, yes. And they're um, pretty helpful. So how are you balancing all of that? You know, and I I don't say that because you're a mom. We, We ask parents of both genders that. But, you know, what, you know, what does having kids mean for you in terms of your political outlook? And and what does it mean for you in terms of campaigning? Well, I mean, I like to joke for my political outlook is that, you know, moms get stuff done. So we should... (laughs) You should have, and parents in general. I mean, parents, you know, they just make things work because they have to. Um, I mean, your primary focus is your kids and the well-being of your kids and raising your family and doing the best that you can for them. And you, and you just do it. You, you, it's, it's sometimes uh, life isn't easy. Most of the time it isn't, I guess. And you just do what you have to do in order to make things good for your family. So I think having... Um, uh, parent perspective on that is uh, is good in our uh, state house. How I am doing it is my kids, I don't know if I'd be able to do it if I had toddlers, but my kids are six and eight years old and they come canvassing with me. They come on scooters and they knock doors and ring bells and my son is working on his handwriting and writing postcards with me and being helpful. They're also easily bribed and there is a prize at the end of this. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I have to watch out. There's two, if I do too many evenings away from the kids, their behavior starts to ramp up and, you know, they miss me and they don't know how to deal with that. And I have to be really cognizant of how I'm spending time with them and making sure that it's quality time, even if it's less time than I normally do. I know on your website, you mentioned some hobbies, and I'm guessing you don't have a whole lot of time for hobbies. <laughs> well, it's really funny. I mean, one is cake making, and I'm actually making cupcakes as we speak. I'm multitasking. <laughs> we're, we're opening up our office in Weymouth and having a big party, so I was going to bring some cupcakes. <laughs> 
do you uh, do you get to do things like read books and dress up in costumes anymore? Um, so Halloween, yes. We just ordered all our costumes. It's very exciting. We're going to be Harry Potter themed this year. I'm going to be Professor McGonagall, and then my son is going to be Harry Potter. So yes, no, I make I make everyone dress up in costumes, and we did that. Uh, so they're on their way, and that should be super exciting. And then cake making, yeah. I mean, I usually do it for birthdays. So my son's birthday is coming up in December. Thankfully, after this whole thing is over, I and mean, we'll he'll pick out whatever cake he wants, and I'll see if I can I can make it. Some years I've been more successful than others, but <laughs> it all tastes good in the end. So one thing I wanted to ask about was what are the things that you can do at the state legislative level for healthcare? So we think a lot about healthcare in terms of the national legal scene and the Affordable Care Act and things like that. But mm-hmm. what are the things that can be done at the state level to help fix healthcare? Well, there's a lot. You know, I talk about wanting to move to a more universal system and, you know, people throw around single payer and Medicare for all. um, And all of those are great options. And there's slight differences in it that you don't necessarily need to go into. But the general idea is that we need to go to a more universal program because right now this is not working. And it's not a sustainable system for families. There are ways that Massachusetts can start moving towards a universal system. And honestly, I think once States like Massachusetts and California uh, start moving towards this. And I think if we can get, you know, a a federal government that is more receptive to it, we can do a true universal across the United States program, which is which is ultimately what we need to do. But what we can do in Massachusetts is uh, do something similar. You know, uh, Medicare is actually a very good program. You have to improve it. Anytime you expand anything, um, you'd have to uh, uh, improve it. And there are ways that you can go about legislatively to get kind of waivers out of the federal system to make something similar like that work in a state. It has less administration costs, so Medicare has about 2 to 3% administration costs versus insurance companies, which have about 20 to 30%. Um, so there's a lot of cost savings when it comes to that. And then uh, pharmaceutical industries, when you um, are a big entity, you can argue for better prices for your you know, medications and your medical devices. And so that's another way that you can save money. So people um, you know, always ask me, you know, how is this going to get paid for? This is you know, really expensive. But right now it is hugely expensive and there are ways that we can save money and actually we can make it more efficient and affordable um, if we can go to a broader system like this. And then what ends up happening is instead of you paying copays and deductibles and all the stuff that you pay with money taken out of your checks and stuff for it, it just comes as a one tax. Businesses get taxed, people get taxed, it all gets pooled in and the government then doles out the money with a board. There's, you know, the idea is that you have a uh, 20 to 25 member board, something like that, where it has a bunch of people and they can kind of help decide how this runs, which is probably more information than you want, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. So sorry about that. No, no, I think that's great. I, I love knowing that candidates know more about this stuff than I do. <laughs> I want to vote for people who know how to do things. <laughs> Well, yeah, I know. That seems great. (laughs) You know, that's what we need. You know, we need more diversity in government. Unfortunately, the way that our, uh, you know, 
election system is set up is horrible, right? And that needs to be revamped. And the money needs to be gotten out of politics and all of this stuff. But we're, we're losing. We have, we have too many lawyers. We have too many career politicians. We need some. Don't get me wrong. That's great. But we just have too many of them. And we don't have enough teacher voices. And we don't have enough union worker voices. And we don't have enough healthcare worker voices, because all of these things matter, and, the, and scientists' voices, and we need this expertise so that those people can be the leaders in this, because you can't lead on everything, right? But you, you, we need these leaders to lead on environmental issues and education issues and working family issues. We just don't, we just don't have enough people to lead on it, because we don't have enough diversity in our government. Is there anything else that you want to make sure we talk about? You know, I, would, I will throw out that uh, running for office is really hard. I mean, having never done it before, um, I didn't quite understand how hard it is. You need a lot of help in order to get people in, especially when they're going up against incumbents. Incumbents have an advantage. About 85% of the time they win just because they are incumbents, whether they're good or bad. So getting new people in is really tough. And the way that we can get new people in is we need people to help. And so my campaign really needs a lot of help, but just like any campaign needs a lot of help. And we strive to be as inclusive as possible. So canvassing is always great, knocking on doors. But if you can't do that, we do postcards. We're doing handwritten postcards everywhere. If you can't do that, you know, just coming and hanging out and being supportive or doing stuff on social media or Facebook or there's numerous ways. Just contact a campaign. Any campaign is going to want to have your help and I, definitely ours will want to have your help. And then the money, unfortunately, that's, you know, still a big thing in it. And uh, where does the money go? It goes to printing and mailing, which is hugely expensive. Getting mailers out, especially when people don't know your name, can cost $20,000, depending on the size of your district. So money is always appreciated and, and, and very much needed, whether you can do five, ten, twenty dollars, something like that, it adds up. So my website's www.votemcbrine, V-O-T-E-M-C-B-R-I-N-E.com, and all that information is on there, plus every stance, because I believe in transparency in government. So if there's anything you ever want to know about me, it's on there. All right, and we'll put links up to your website and your social media up on our website as well. Awesome. Thank you. Katie, thanks so much uh, for talking to me today. Always fun to talk to a Chicagoan. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, have fun making those uh, cupcakes. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you. And thank you for having me on. Have a good day. You too. segment, I am here with Charlotte Goddard, who is running for the Kentucky House of Representatives in District 2. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, I'm going to start with what is usually our first question, which is, can you tell me about your background, what you've done up until now, and, and what made you decide to run for the Kentucky House? My name is Charlotte Goddard, and I'm a candidate for House District 2 in Western Kentucky, specifically Graves County and McCracken County, uh, which is around the Paducah area in Kentucky. 
I have not had political ambitions. I am actually a very busy teacher. I'm a mother of two children. I'm a wife and my husband owns a small business. So political ambitions were were not something that, that I had in mind. So I decided to run. I started kind of getting more active in local politics based on a lot of the legislation that was coming out starting around 2015. We elected Governor Bevin uh, as a governor of Kentucky, and he brought with him the Coke agenda into Kentucky and really started uh, affecting a lot of changes in Kentucky that were really hitting working Kentuckians very hard, my family included. And so there was kind of a progression of uh, they started attacking the rights of union members, including uh, making Kentucky a right to work state, repealing the prevailing wage. And it's just been a constant stream of legislation that has really been harmful to uh, working class citizens in our state. And then around uh, 2017, uh, our schools really have been hammered since the recession in Kentucky. We have lost a lot of funding over time. Back in the 1990s, there was a Kentucky Education Reform Act where they were trying to make sure that all of Kentucky schools were had equity in funding. And so there was a, a, a large reform process in that. And um, part of that was their funding model, and they changed to um, a SEEK formula and those sorts of things. And over time, and specifically since 2008, during the recession, there's been just a really drastic in, um, cuts to funding to public education, and it's been really, really harmful and really difficult for teachers and administrators in many, many ways. We've lost a lot of services. It's affected everything from early learning, early childhood, all the way up through university level. So in 2017, they started passing legislation for things such as um, charter schools. They were going to take additional funding dollars from taxpayers and take them out of our local public schools and put them into uh, charter schools and private schools. There was also a tax on pensions. Again, this is all kind of aligned with the, the Coke agenda the ALEC agenda, and really privatizing uh, public education and um, trying to privatize pensions. And so, you know, teachers were losing, were standing to lose a lot of, of benefits, benefits that were part of what they call an inviolable contract, which we have found out that, you know, even with the name inviolable, and it being a contract, um, apparently they can just rewrite the law and violate the contract. And so that really got a lot of um, Kentucky educators on alert. So, you know, we're seeing the the defunding of public education and then, you know, taking away some of the, the pension benefits that we had been promised, you know, when we signed our contracts. So around 2017, the governor started he was going to call a special session to pass his uh, pension reform bill. So my legislator was asked to speak at a town hall meeting 
with KEA in um, the Paducah area, which is just a little north of where we live. And um, he did not show up. Our senator did not show up. So basically, we didn't have representatives who were voting for us who were showing up and explaining why they would or would not vote for these bills. And so it really it was upsetting. You know, this is our livelihood. We're, we're looking at um, really it's like a deferred benefit. You know, we don't get paid a lot of money for the, the kind of hours that we put in and and they're threatening to take away some of the benefits that we were promised when we were hired on as teachers. And um, they were not willing to take account accountability for that and to speak up. And so in November, just uh, about a week or maybe two after the KEA town hall from Paducah, I was calling my legislators and um, emailing and just trying to get them to to contact me because I felt like um, we needed to hear from them. They were um, noncommittal during an interview for one of the local um, radio stations as to whether they would vote for the legislation or not. And I felt like we needed to hear from them. And so I asked them to come to a, well, I asked specifically my representative to come to a town hall meeting um, in our district and um, to speak to us about uh, his decision and what what he feel like how he would vote on that decision and he did agree to attend um, this was just days away from a possible special session and so i had about four days to put together a town hall um, so i started contacting people by email phone calls um, I started contacting um, media, just trying to get awareness out and to to allow our district to hear from our legislators. And so that kind of was the kickoff, the 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 straw that broke the camel's back. That I I had not decided at that point to run, but after listening to my legislator really lied to my face, um, he told us that uh, the pension bill was dead on arrival. He told us that the that the bill was basically it was dead, that it wasn't going anywhere. And um, a few months later, then down the road, it, it, it did. It came back to life. So he told us that the 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 bill was dead. And a month later, in December, our Speaker of the House in Kentucky he resigned for sexual indiscretions. He was sending pictures to uh, some females staff and uh, she blew the whistle and he resigned and my legislator stepped in and defended him. He called for him to be reinstated. In fact, he was trying, he was going through laws trying to figure out if he could maintain his position as a speaker of the house or not. And I had emailed my legislator and had told him that as a, a survivor of sexual violence, sexual abuse, it was very insulting to me that that he would take on this role as instead of, you know, encouraging him to withdraw as Speaker of the House, instead he was encouraging him to stay on as Speaker of the House and in fact making calls for him in his defense. And he sent an email back to me stating that 
basically it was uh, none of my business that I didn't know all of the details and that he was not concerned with my opinion. And so, you know, I just felt like in the best interest of our district, I didn't feel like he was well suited for the job. Um, He has not been paying attention to the people of District 2 and our needs as working people. And, um, you know, as a woman, I really started to feel like we were not being valued, that we were not being listened to. You know, teachers were predominantly a female industry. You know, it's predominantly female. So we're Females are looking at losing a lot of security with our pensions. Again, the public education funding, then we spend a lot more time looking for resources and paying for resources and creating resources. And um, it's not uncommon to work 75 hours a week as a teacher, you know, while losing a lot of sleep and time with our families. And I just don't feel like that was being valued by our legislators and also by our governor. There seems to have been this strange shift in power in Kentucky. So in up until 2016, the Democrats actually had control of the state house, which I think would be surprising to a lot of people who think of Kentucky as a very Republican state now. But then in 2016, there was a massive shift toward the Republicans and they, they got control of the the House. And it sounds like that's when some of what you're describing was starting with the, the Coke agenda and and some of these things that are were really getting worse for, for teachers and, and families. Yes. So what are you hearing from people as you are going around the district and, and talking to people, what what kind of reception is your campaign getting? You know, it are what are what are the people saying about the the issues they care about, and you know how they're likely to vote in the fall. Well, I don't know how much you have followed the teacher rebellions that are going on from state to state. Mm-hmm. But after, you know, of course, you know, Kentucky has had its issues for a little while with, with in terms of legislation and, and those sorts of things for a little while. And, and as all these states have, I mean, these rebellions didn't just happen overnight. Or one state, West Virginia, decided to do this. So, okay, so today Kentucky's going to do this. You know, we all kind of have a, a very, a variety of, of issues that are going on. And like I said, there are multiple issues going on with education in our state. And so with the, the teacher rebellion starting in West Virginia, it really helped to fan the flames of the emotions um, that have been brewing in Kentucky for a while related to the underfunding of education and um, the um, the pension reform issues that were going on. And uh, we had created what is called Kentucky 120 Strong with 42,000 members of, of state employees as well as, as teachers, educators. And so, you know, there is a lot of resistance. Um, There is a lot of anger. You know, people are feeling very betrayed right now. We're feeling undervalued, underappreciated. The governor has continuously hurled insults directed at 
teachers. Uh, he has called us everything from thugs to ignorant to accusing us of during rallies and protests uh, saying that our students were being sexually molested because we were in Frankfurt instead of in our school districts advocating for ourselves. And so um, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of um, a lot of anger and there's a lot of anger among our union brothers and sisters. My husband was a United Steel worker for several years. In fact, that's how we came to live in District 2. We were a young couple when we got married and really didn't have the stability to make a home somewhere. And he got a job at General Tire as a union employee. He had good benefits. He had good wages. And that allowed us to buy a home and to buy cars and um, those sorts of things. And when you start attacking manufacturing and unionized jobs and trying to give the corporations the advantage of, you know, being able to set wages. Um, and it takes the, the power away from the unions. You, you kind of get some dissent there. Um, you know, unions have been so key and, and they have been such a major influence in, increasing the, the quality of workers and workers' rights, of our benefits, things all the way back to, you know, 40-hour work weeks, weekends, ending child labor, the protections that we have, workers' compensation. So many of those things came out of union jobs. And so when they started attacking union jobs or union unionization, and education, it just really has affected so many people across the district. People are upset. People are upset. They've also, you know, started dismantling or tried to dismantle. It's actually in court right now, the Medicaid expansion that Governor Bashir put in place. And that is going to affect altogether in my district somewhere around 11,000 people. So it's, it's a large number of people um, in my district who could potentially lose Medicaid benefits. If our listeners would like to help out your campaign, how can they do that? They could visit my website at www.com votecharlottegoddard.com. And we can put a, a link to that on our website as well so people can find that. We will be watching very closely in November and I just wish you all the luck in the world. I really hope that you and, and all of the other really outstanding, brave teachers and women who are, are standing up and saying, that's enough. We need to do something. Um, I, I just I hope that you're all successful. I think it's so important and so uh, so great that that you've gotten involved in this way. Thank you so much. It was kind of a leap of faith. Um, it's uh, not something that I had planned to do. I've had so much uh, support and encouragement. I actually. I am an alumna of the Emerge Kentucky program, which actually has helped me prepare to run as a candidate. And that has, that's been a good program 
to tap into. And then I have a lot of support through other other organizations, such as uh, um, the Women's March. I was part of the Women's March, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, KEA, of course, the now Western Kentucky Group, the ACLU, the NAACP, Kentucky 120, um, Moms Demand Action. So, you know, there's been a, a lot of a lot of support, and um, I so appreciate, you know, what everyone has done for me and the, the support and the encouragement of my campaign has been tremendous, and, and I surely appreciate that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me, and thank you for everything you're doing. Yes, thank you. Here in this segment with Helen Pendarvis, who is running for the 35th District of the South Carolina House of Representatives. Hi, Helen. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining me. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah. Could we start with just a a little bit of background? Tell me a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for the State House. I am a mom of five. I have four adult sons and a nine-year-old daughter. I am a child advocate by education and passion. Um, I currently work as a paralegal for a local law firm. And I decided to run not just because we need a change in in other areas of politics, but we need a change in local politics. And most people don't realize how local politics affect them. So... A part of why I run is to educate people on how local politics affect them and how I can better serve them than the current representative. In South Carolina right now, the Republicans have a really big majority in the state house. So what does that look like for you then, this this idea of local politics and, and what sort of impact you can really have in the state house? Well, one of the things that I look at is our state house decides on our teachers' pay here in the state. And in the state of South Carolina, our teachers are some of the lowest paid teachers in the United States. And I think having a house and a governor that agree that we need to change that would change our teachers' pay and we wouldn't be last in education. So what part of South Carolina is District 35? District 35 is in Spartanburg County, and it is the area of Duncan, Reedville, Woodruff, and the Pelham Road area. And as you're going around and, and talking to people and canvassing. What are you hearing from people in this district? It's been a Republican district for a while, and it it hasn't even, the incumbent hasn't even really been challenged much by Democrats. So what are you hearing from people? One of the things that we heard today as we canvassed, it was about 
what's going to happen to the current elementary school that's being rebuilt. So that's been a really concern of the people. And I, although I've explained to them that as a, rep a state representative, that, you know, that's not something that I have control over, but apparently they seem to think so because the current representative is kind of in the middle of that whole controversy as to what's going to happen. But the main thing that I've heard from the constituents, their concern is about the personhood bill that died in the House last session. People are really concerned about what that means to them. You know, well, what happens if that bill passes? Is, is it going to be, you know, that's not going to stop abortion. It's going to cause you know, a lot of young women to die. And so that's been a lot of what I've been hearing. And can you talk to me a little bit about your faith? I know that's something that's important to you and sort of how that helps inform your political views. Because my faith does play a large part and I'm led by my faith. I'm also led by the belief that we have to allow people to have their own convictions. We can't force our convictions on others. My faith is just that. It is my faith. I'm led by my faith, so I can't expect you to be led by my faith. It has to be your conviction, and I believe that 100%. Are you hearing from people in in the church and people in your faith community concerns about the way that that both state and, and national government is working right now? Yes. What I've been hearing from both people in my church and in the community, in the faith community, they are very concerned about national government and everybody wants to know what's really going on. You know, why are these choices being made? Why is something not being done? And I'm also hearing from the community, if you, if you're led by your faith, how can you know, would you allow certain things to continue? And because I am, it would definitely impact the way I voted on some things. But ultimately, it would be what's in the best interest of my constituents. And I think being led by my faith would ensure that whatever decisions I made would be in the best interest of my constituents. So what are some of the other issues? You mentioned education. What are some of the other things that, that you think are, are in the best interest of constituents, things that aren't being well taken care of right now? Affordable housing. And, and people think when you say affordable housing, you, you mean, you know, uh, things like Section 8 housing or projects or things like that, but there needs to be decent, affordable housing for every income. You know, if, if you know anything about renting an apartment, you must, your pay must be three times the, the amount of your rent. Well, if you make minimum wage, you don't make three times the average rent. And in the average rent in the upstate is $1,190. So if you make $7.25 or $0.35 cents an hour, you don't make enough money to rent that apartment. So if we're not going to change the minimum wage, then we need to do something about housing, but we need to change the minimum wage. It's no longer a living wage. 
And that's one of the things I've been hearing a lot about, too. You know, when are we going to get a living wage? You know, most people aren't looking for $15 an hour, but they are looking for a living wage, something that they can live off of and feed their family. And, you know, that's just not happening in this state. And I know there's a federal minimum wage, but there is something that the state of South Carolina can do to change that as well. One of the things we've been talking to people about as we've been talking around the country to state legislative candidates is how different the role of state legislator looks in different places. And so I noticed that in South Carolina, the compensation for a House representative is really low. It's just a little over $10,000 a year and then a per diem when, when it's in session. So what does that look like then in terms of who is currently who are the representatives, you know, who who are the people who can live on this kind of, you know, compensation for what they're doing and, you know, can can do sort of part time work? You know, what is the what is the current house look like? So the current house being predominantly Republican controlled or being Republican controlled, they are all wealthy people. They are business owners and and property owners and attorneys who, you know, they are wealthy people. Most of the Democratic representatives have jobs like myself. I would not leave my job as a paralegal. I've already spoken to my attorneys and it kind of freaked them out at first when they thought, oh, my God, what are, you, what are we going to do when you leave? <laughs> but then, you know, but then, you know, I, let, I assured them I could work remotely. I'll, I'll be there on Mondays and Fridays. But, you know, that's my reality. I It takes two incomes to run my household, and I definitely couldn't do it as a state representative. Mm-hmm. So de- money is definitely not a, a motivator in why I run. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that seems like that's probably true for, for most people running for state legislature. Are there concerns about health care in your district? I noticed when I was looking through that the incumbent was one of the people who had put a bill to make the implementation of the Affordable Care Act a, a criminal act in, in South Carolina. And so I'm wondering what are a lot of people in South Carolina using the Affordable Care Act and in your district? Are they concerned about health care? A lot of people in South Carolina do depend upon the Affordable Care Act. One of my sons, you know, he's not 26, he's 29, it depends on the Affordable Care Act because the job that he has does not provide insurance. He works for a mom-and-pop company, so he depends on the Affordable Care Act. And my district is a little different because I have in my district the wealthy and the poor. I don't have a whole lot of the in-between. So a lot of my constituents do depend on the Affordable Care Act, and they depend on the subsidies that they are allowed in order to afford health insurance. And some of them, um, you know, they depend on Medicaid and Medicare. And a lot of them, especially my older citizens, are concerned about what's going to happen if my Medicare goes away or those that have Medicare and Medicaid, you know, they'll tell me, you know, Medicaid pays for my medicine. What's going to happen if Medicaid goes away? And that's a real concern for a lot of my constituents because if Medicaid goes away, then they may have to make the choice between buying groceries and buying meds or 
buying medicine and paying the electric bill. So it is a real concern of my of my constituents, some of my constituents, as to what happens if the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, Medicaid go away. Is there anything else that you want to make sure we talk about? Well, I'd like to expound on my platform just a little more. Sure. There are a couple of beliefs that that I have, and I, I uh, strongly strongly stand by, and one of which is on my website, I, I have a blog that says, hell yeah, we need to arm teachers. And I believe that we do need to arm teachers because one of the things that I've seen as I talk to teachers is they need an advocate. And, and I'm also finding that a lot of teachers don't vote because they feel like their vote doesn't matter and they don't have a choice. So one of the things that, that, that I, I stand on as, as my platform and, and as the opportunity arises in South Carolina, I will be a very loud voice for it is, is education reform. I, I, you know, I think our teachers not only need an inc- a pay increase, a huge pay increase, but I believe that they need to have dignity returned to them. My daughter, this is her, and, and I'm not ashamed to say, but this is my daughter. She's in in fourth grade, her first year in in public school. She's always gone to private school because of the situation of our our current, our public school system. But we're in a very good school district, so we decided to see how she adjusted to public school. Her teacher gets, in the morning, they have related arts. So her teacher gets 40 minutes to check emails, to return phone calls to parents, and to use the restroom. That is it. At lunch, she doesn't get to sit down to eat her lunch. She has to walk and eat, which is generally some crackers and a drink, because she has lunchroom duties. She has to monitor. She and the other teachers have to monitor the lunchroom. Those things shouldn't be. Teachers need to have time to take a break, to use the restroom, and I, heard, I had a teacher tell me that she has mastered the art of holding her bladder for six hours. That shouldn't happen. We need to return dignity to our teachers. We need to arm them with their dignity. We need to arm them with opportunities. And we definitely need to arm them with better pay. And we talked a little bit about affordable housing. We need a, we need decent affordable housing for every person. Every person deserves to have a home, and we need to make sure that that happens. We need a living wage. There is no way, not even a single person can live on $7 an hour. We need a living wage. And we need, in District 35, one of the things that we need is any funds that the state government gives to the representatives those funds need to come back to District 35, and that is not happening. Our current representative gave $30,000 to another representative to widen 15 feet of road that's not even in his district. We need to make sure whatever funds that are allotted to District 35, that they come back to District 35, especially for infrastructure with the way that the district is growing, where we have Right now, four subdivisions being built simultaneously, but the money to fix the, the impact that the heavy machinery does to the roads 
we don't have those funds when we did have $30,000 that could have gone towards that and it didn't go. So we need to make sure that those funds come back to the district. Everything that belongs to District 35 needs to come back to District 35. If our listeners would like to help out your campaign, how can they do that? They can do that by going to my website, Pendarvis for the word for 35.org or they can find me on act blue and um, just click on the p and you can find me helen pendarvis on act blue or they can mail a check to post office box 793 duncan south carolina 29334 and if they would like to volunteer they can click the volunteer button on my website and it'll send me an email, and I will get right back in touch with them because we need lots of volunteers. We have a lot of ground to cover with canvassing. Uh, there are 4,084 inactive voters in District 35, and we need all of those people to come out to the polls and vote on November 6th for Pendarvis for 35. All right, excellent. We'll put links for that up on our website as well. So thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm sure is a busy day canvassing to talk to me, and uh, we wish you a lot of luck in November. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Two Broads Talking Politics. Our theme song is called Are You Listening? off of the album Elephant Shaped Trees by the band Immunuri, and we're using it with permission of the band. Our logo and other original artwork is by Matthew Wethlin and was created for use by this podcast.